Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention for a moment? I don't want to stop you from eating. You will soon be served dessert. Keep eating, but I want to make sure that you have food for thought as well as food for your uh, physical sustenance. And so it's my pleasure to introduce our lunchtime speaker, one of our uh, major speakers for the day. So I hope you will join me in welcoming. We have Professor Tim Besley. Tim Besley is a school professor at the LSE. Uh, which is our highest uh, rank of professor in recognition both of his extraordinarily distinguished work as an economist and his work that connects across the whole school. He's been one of the leaders in establishing our public administration and public policy programs uh, and in many other ways around the school. He's also an economist of exceptionally broad outlook as well as very deep Research, and he's going to, I think, bring these together in speaking about the issue of leveraging Asia's success and telling us a bit about how the rest of the world understands and draws lessons from Asian economic success. Tim? Uh, thank you very much, Craig. Um, uh, thank you particularly for that very kind introduction. It's one of those occasions where if my parents had been in the room, uh, my father would have been proud and my mother would have believed you. Um, so uh, my, my, I have the unenviable job of being a lunchtime speaker. Um, you've had lots of food for, for thought so far and you've now had uh, food in the literal sense. So uh, I'm going to talk for a few minutes on this topic, which probably appears slightly cryptic. I, I have to say I'm at a, a disadvantage in a number of respects that I only flew in yesterday and I woke up at 4 a.m. Uh, trying to fret about what I would talk about now. And uh, uh, what, I'm, what I really want to talk about is what I would call the intellectual, not the financial leverage that Asia has to offer. And I'm going to set that in context a little bit in, 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 a, few, in a few minutes. Um, but really what I want to talk about is how, how to see Asia's success in, 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 a, in a broad context and how that's influencing thinking in other parts of the world. Because I don't regard myself in any, in any respect as an Asia specialist. Um, but I do encounter quite a bit in the work that I do uh, interest in what has gone on here and what the lessons are, what we should be drawing as, as, as lessons. I want to locate that both in the context of some policy discussions I've been involved in, but also in the context of some debates that economists are having uh, about what drives long-run development and how Asia allows us to reflect upon that. Now, of course, we can, there's a number of different ways to, to look at, at Asia's uh, success. Um, uh, I, I've got to say, uh, on the very long uh, uh, plane journey from, from London, I was, uh, I was uh, armed to the teeth with a laptop and loaded with data. So I thought I'll take a fresh look at uh, different dimensions of, of Asia's success from a statistical point of view. And I thought the one that kind of crystallizes, uh, I think, what a lot of people uh, view as uh, a measure of success is that Asia is grown in the period for which we have good and reliable data at about 1.5% per year, more than what you might say are the natural comparators, the other emerging markets in the world. Now, you might say 1.5% doesn't sound like a lot. Well, you know, Lewis Hamilton recently won the Malaysian Grand Prix going half a second a lap faster 
um, than his competition. 1.5% growth actually over 50 years amounts to about 225% higher GDP at the end of, end of a 50-year period. The, it's one of these won- wondrous features of compounding that you don't need much of a growth premium to discover that over a prolonged period you've actually raised your income level quite significantly. So Asia over that 50-year period has grown away from the rest of the uh, most of the emerging market world away from Latin America away from particularly Africa um, and has shown a growth premium relative to those parts of the world of course to talk about Asia is itself um, uh, not, 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 not entirely fair to do I mean within Asia there's plenty of variation just as within all of the other parts of the world there is variability but by and large people look to Asia from the outside as a place which has delivered a certain uh, uh, a level of economic success. And in terms of, uh, in global terms, of course, that means that the, 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 in, in terms of the Millennium Development Goals, particularly the goal on absolute poverty reduction, Asia is more or less delivered for the rest of the world, in part because, of course, within Asia you have India and China, both of whom have had very, very significant reductions in absolute poverty. In fact, probably in the last uh, uh, 20 or so years, they're some of the biggest reductions in absolute poverty we've, pro- we've seen in the history of our planet. Um, so very significantly, Asia has contributed to a notion that there is a model, or potentially a model out there, of successful economic development, and that's really what I, what I want to talk about. As I say, the, 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 the most obvious comparator for Asia's success are other uh, countries which started 50 or 60 years ago with comparable levels of of GDP per capita. Uh, And and as I said, Asia has grown very significantly relative to those. When it comes to catching up, though, with the rich countries of the world, it's less impressive. And indeed, there's a a debate that goes on, and some of you may have uh, encountered it in in some contexts, about the possibility that Asia has, has hit something called a middle income trap, that relatively few countries have emerged from middle income to high income. And the question is, if, is, is that really uh, a sensible way to think? And I, and I, want, to, and I want to talk about that again in, in a moment. But before I talk about that, I actually want to pick up on a, on a theme um, which sort of has come up two or three times already in this, uh, in this forum. Um, and that's the, the, the theme of, uh, uh, of politics. Um, now, uh, and particularly, I want to talk about ch- changes in the way economics is done. Uh, and uh, you kind of know you're getting old at a point when you can look on your career and see discernible trends in the way in which uh, your discipline has evolved. And I remember when I was a freshly minted uh, assistant professor, uh, and I was at Princeton, was my first job. Um, I, I rolled up, as one does, sort of full of beans and enthusiasm, and spoke to one of my senior colleagues, who, uh, someone I, who's been a friend for life and uh, I respect a great deal, and said, he said, what are you interested in? I said, I'm interested in economic development. And he sort of shook his head and said, uh, well, you know, I used to be interested in economic development, but I decided all the problems of development were political, and therefore I decided as an economist I had nothing to contribute. Um, <laughs> I think the, the, the good news is the good news is that we've changed the discipline of economics. That if you studied economics today, and particularly if you studied economic development today, um, the discussion of development would be infused in equal measure by discussion of what you might call traditional economic issues and uh, and uh, the study of 
uh, political economy. And that's right at the core of the debates that we now have about what, what goes on in the process of economic development, what determines the levels of economic development. I mean, another way to put it is that if you said to me now, what's the bigger problem of development? Is it that we don't know what to do or we can't get the things that we know what to do to happen? I would say it's very much the latter. Whereas if you look in the early period of economic development, it was much more around if you only had the right technocratic resources, the right advice and the right knowledge, then the rest would happen. But we discovered to our cost it's actually making things happen that's comparatively more difficult than knowing what the right thing to do is. And, uh, and that's really what's transformed the discipline of economics in the way uh, we think about this and, and has taken economists into territory that they were traditionally very suspicious of and well beyond the study of politics, as I'll come to in a moment. And it's blurring uh, the borders of disciplines. As an as a ardent uh, football fan, I like to think of the analogy with what the Dutch team did to transform football. They had this notion of total football in their high era. Everybody could play in every position and play equal. Well, well, I have this sort of dream of what I call total social science, which is the idea that, that we don't need to confine ourselves to any particular field. We want to study problems, and we need to bring to bear on the study of those problems whatever knowledge is most suited to, 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 to studying that. I am reminded also that, uh, I, as of course, as an economist, uh, the one thing you're meant to be able to do is mathematics. Um, that sort of slightly distinguishes ec economics from other branches of, uh, of the social sciences. And I was actually taught, um, taught uh, as a PhD student by uh, an economist called Terence Gorman, who actually um, was originally at the LSE and had moved to Oxford. I was a graduate student at Oxford. Um, although I am reminded when I, when I think of Terence making the move from London to Oxford of the story of when Paderewski became... Uh, Prime Minister of Poland, having been a concert pianist, someone said, what a come down. Um, uh, and I sort of reminded of that. But Terence once said to me, I think because he understood I wasn't a particularly gifted mathematician, and he was, he said, uh, he said the great thing about being a good mathematician and being an economist is that you can spend all your time reading history. You don't have to read economics very much because as, as a mathematician you can read the economics very quickly. And I've come to sort of believe that actually there's a great value in economists reading history, and we've really reintegrated our discipline in recent years, in particular our study of the long-run drivers of development and the way we think about that with a better appreciation of the role of history. Now, I'm just going to briefly uh, return to where every economist does who has any pretense uh, towards history and with Adam Smith and say, what did Adam Smith say in The Wealth of Nations was the key to understanding long-run economic success? Well, he had a simple sentence to state that, uh, and that was peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice. And that was, that was all you needed, and if you, as long as you had that, then development was assured. Actually, I don't think he was like 100 degrees uh, uh, wrong there, uh, he, but I, I'm going to come back to the sense in which I think we've reinvented some of those ideas in, in, in a moment. Um, uh, so so let, me, let me now uh, introduce three letters, uh, three letters that are going to uh, uh, sort of be the focal point of my next, uh, the next few minutes. Uh, IGC. Now, IGC of the LSE stands for International Growth Center. 
Um, some of you may, may, not, may or may not know that we, we, we started a new institution at the LSE, uh, and it's a joint venture, actually, between us and Oxford University, funded by the Department for International Development. We have a significant presence in Asia, but mainly in South Asia, in Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India. And the role of the IGC is to try and learn the lessons of other countries and to spread knowledge and best practice across the world. In particular, we're very active in Africa to understand how it is that that we can leverage the knowledge of successful parts of the world to provide lessons for other parts of the world. So that was what. That, so that's one uh, one uh, use of the term IGC. But I also realise that if you look at the core debate that goes on in the study of economic development, that's also at this point could be summarised as IGC. There are three core views uh, about what drives long-run economic success: institutions, geography, and culture, which also spells. IGC. It turns out fortuitously to draw that link. Um, and I would say that in the, 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 the debate that's now going on in economics, which is infused, as I said, with the kinds of themes that are in other social sciences, has really transformed our understanding. And I, I think some of us rather grandiosely um, believe that we're involved in uh, the search for the equivalent of the double helix, but in economics. You know, really, what is it? What are those fundamental drivers? What is it that lies behind economic success? Now, within that, uh, the institutionalists uh, are, uh, are a big camp. And some of you may have read uh, Darren uh, Asimoglu and Jim Robinson's book, Why Nations Fail, which has become a big success in, uh, in pushing the view that uh, it's all about institutions. Indeed, I tease them and call them institutional fundamentalists when I discuss these issues with, with them. They believe that the core to understanding the different patterns of development that are that, that, we see around the world is essentially which countries acquired functional institutions um, and which countries, for one reason or another, have failed to make that, that transition. I should add, by the way, that, uh, it, it, well, as a saying, I want someone heard making this rather uncharitable comment about economists. Where they say, because you say in London, you're never more than five feet from a rat. Um, well, the equivalent is in intellectual debates on the economy, you're never more than a few metres away from the work of LSE economists. Um, and that's actually true in the case of why nations failed. Jim Robinson was an undergraduate at LSE and Darren Asimogli was a PhD student. So there's a, an immediate connection back to LSE there. So what they're arguing is that the real, if you like, the DNA, the thing that we should be focusing on when we understand economic success, is the institutional structures, the political, the social and cultural institutions uh, that lie behind development. Now, the tendency when mapping that into an account of what matters, and I'll come back to the Asia story in a moment, uh, is to think that you should be mapping the formal rules of the game. So what's become very popular in the political economy of development is to look at the institutional rules for politics. So what kind of political institutions do you have? How do you categorize those? You could look at the extent of checks and balances. Is there proper parliamentary oversight? Is there, uh, are there elections? Are there other kinds of institutions, free press? The kinds of things that we think might be fundamental political institutions that have a bearing on the way the economy works. And it's become quite form formalistic in the sense you can go out and you do your best to measure those things. And then you try as, as you might to draw some evidence from the differences that different countries have. Now, the one thing you see is if you look within Asia, there is a very wide variety 
of pictures of the kinds of political institutions that appear to accompany economic success. So you'd be hard-pressed, for example, uh, to look at China and believe that China conformed to some standardized notion of what you might say are good institutions. So, of course, what do, what do Asimoglu and Robinson say about that? Well, they're actually China, uh, China pessimists. They actually believe that the sustainability of Chinese growth will be severely compromised in the end by the absence of good institutions. And they have a wonderful example, actually, from probably what was the most famous textbook in all of economics, which was Paul Samuelson's textbook that went through many, many different editions. And inside the front cover of Samuelson's book, right from the first edition, were projections at the point at which the income per capita of the Soviet Union would overtake um, the United States. And in the early editions, it was just 25 years away. That, you know, eventually, uh, uh, only, only a short period. And as different editions of Samuelson were issued, the date at which uh, the Soviet Union was going to overtake the United States became further and further into the future. And of course, by the end, I assume by the last editions of Samuelson, that, that picture had entirely disappeared. And they draw that analogy, say, well, that's exactly the kind of thing that people are drawing these uh, relationships uh, these days without thinking about what are the fundamental and potential issues that could arise if you try and grow and develop with a particular in- configuration of institutions. And there is one important fact here, which I'll just table as part of some recent research I'm doing, which is to point out that uh, the really distinguishing factor between countries that have a certain in- level of institutional development, particularly checks and balances on the executive, um, is not so much the level of growth, but actually the volatility. That if you look at the countries in the world with some of the worst growth performances as well as the best growth performances, they tend to be drawn from the distribution of countries that actually have uh, the weakest political institutions. So China on one hand and uh, places like Zimbabwe would be on the other end. Um, and so what you're exposing yourself to in many ways, is a high level of risk, political risk and economic risk, if you have institutions that perform, uh, that, 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 that don't uh, allow you to deal systematically with many issues. And I think that, uh, to, be, to be fair, I think the, the Chinese leadership understands these issues very well. They understand some of the frailties, the potential frailties and shocks that could hit the Chinese economy that within the existing institutional framework would be quite difficult uh, to deal with. So what are the big questions? And I only have a very few, few minutes left, so unfortunately you're not going to get the, uh, the double helix in the, the time I have available. I mean, the big questions are why, which institutional structures matter and why? Well, I've already hinted at that. What are the conduits and mechanisms? Well, the conduits and mechanisms are going to be things that which we regard as better quality policy. And if you look at Asia, across a whole series of metrics, Asia is delivered on the policy front has higher levels of human capital and uh, education more generally. It has uh, um, uh, lower levels of corruption than comparable countries. And, of course, at the moment, that's a major challenge for a number of countries in Asia, but they're aware of that challenge. Many other parts of the world that have high levels of corruption, I would say, are even uh, in denial about the nature of the challenge. So there are indicators like that. Other indicators on infrastructure um, would also show that Asia... Uh, above all the other parts, emerging parts of, of the world has, 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 has delivered. So I, I think at the center of all this is the fact that Asia has by and large developed effective states. 
It's, effect, it's developed effective states with different institutional arrangements. If you look at actually what's gone on in China, it's remarkable how much accountability there is in the system in spite of the fact that the formal political institutions do not resemble what you might regard as the kind of classical democratic accountability. The system has evolved a system of accountability, and indeed there's some very interesting evidence on that. I've seen some work recently on looking at the promotion of provincial governors in China, and it's very clear that those promotions look to follow very much the fortunes of the areas in China which people preside over. So it looks very much like a, a, a model in which people are held to account for good or bad performance. But if you said, what are sort of the best odds to make this work? They do involve, in the end, having a more open system of accountability um, and having some kind of checks and balances that ensure institutional cohesion. Now, I only have about one minute left, and I want to say two, a word about geography, which I just basically want to say, I really don't think people who think geography is the key to understanding development have any chance of explaining what goes on. My favorite counterexample to geography, it actually comes from Massimoglu and Robinson as well, is just look at a picture from space, at, uh, uh, look, look at North and South Korea uh, and, and at night. And essentially what you see are two countries divided by a line Night light in South Korea is incredibly intense, and in North Korea is basically dark. And in a sense, that's symptomatic of the fact that it cannot be a ge geographical difference. They share almost in every sense the same uh, geographical attributes. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that, that nails the view that it's about institutions, but what we know is fundamentally they follow very different patterns of institutional development. The other thing that I'd say Asia has, has done, though, which is related to geography, it's, it's avoided the problem of bad neighborhoods. I mean, if you look in Africa, um, it really does sometimes become the case that you, you have to worry who some of your neighbors are. Now, it's not to say there aren't some bad neighborhoods in Asia, but by and large, Asia has avoided that. One fact that we know, probably one of the most robust facts in all of international trade, is that the elasticity of trade with respect to distance has an elasticity of a minus one. So what does that mean? That 10% further distance away from a country, you're going to trade with it 10% less. So you really do have to think about who your neighbors are and how your neighbors are behaving if you're going to have any uh, uh, measure of success in international trade. Final comment, and I think I, if, if, if there was such a thing as membership of the Club of Economists, I might actually have it revoked for saying this, uh, although I'm not alone, is what about culture? Well, economists are coming at the moment big time into the topic of uh, exploring culture, albeit in our own narrow-minded way. I'm sure the people who've really worried about it for a long time would be utterly horrified. Um, on the other hand, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a poor tradition in economics. George Akerlof, who of course was at the LSE and is a Nobel laureate, was a pioneer of that work many, many years ago. First of all, wrote one of the first papers on caste in economics, uh, uh, wrote about the fact that part of the reason why employers don't pay minimum wages and they pay efficiency wages is because of cultural norms. And finally, in his recent book with Bob Schiller, who won the Nobel Prize even more recently on animal spirits, has a kind of cultural theory of the Great Recession. So it's not, it's not that the economists uh, don't even get rewarded for talking about culture, but 
I think, I think it's, it's the next big topic in economics, and in particular the interrelationship between culture and institutions. The way that you can take one thing, transplant it, and it works very differently in different places. And this really brought home to me. I had a brief, um, uh, I, I'm tempted to call it sabbatical, but I, I think that's probably not the right term. I worked as a policymaker for three years uh, on the interest rate setting committee of the Bank of England, and I remember rolling up and saying, well, what, what do I actually have to do here? I mean, I knew you had to set interest rates, but you know, What's, what, what are the rules here? And so I said, can someone give me a copy of the Act which uh, gave Bank of, Bank of England independence, which describes the duties and responsibilities of the members of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee? And I was shocked. Someone brought me out something that was less than a page long uh, and basically said, if you don't show up for three consecutive meetings, you might actually get uh, fired. Of course, the idea that you would not show up to any, any meeting, uh, you, you know, and that included not just the interest rate setting meetings, but all the meetings, briefing, and other meetings around that. In other words, I realized that you know, there's a set of rules, and then there are the cultural and social norms by which the institution really works. And they'd evolved incredibly rapidly. The bank had only been independent since 1997, and yet it had already evolved a set of very well-established norms and cultural uh, practices around uh, that institution. And it brought home to me that you really cannot think about how a formal institutional arrangement like central bank independence in this case works without thinking about how it transplants. So Craig is giving my march, marching orders. Um, in terms of, of, of Asia's success, uh, I haven't been able to say that I believe it's uh, either institutions or culture or whatever. I have to leave that to your imagination since I haven't really had time to speculate too much on that. But I do think um, that the framework of thinking when you go through country experiences, how is it that the institutional framework is contributing or not? And also the interplay between culture and institutions is where uh, this issue really lies. And we have a program called State Effectiveness in the International Growth Center, and we're very much keen to learn the lessons of state effectiveness from Asia because I'm absolutely convinced that that's where we can learn something that can promote and leverage the success of Asia into the rest of the world. Thank you very much.